Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, what a special time this morning. I'm always uh, thankful this time of year. Um, I love the worship that we get to do, especially some of the songs uh, throughout the year that we get to do that are brand new. But I also love those songs that remind us of when we first came to faith or when we grew up. Uh, during this season, singing these songs, and uh, there are memories attached to some of these traditional hymns that we sing, aren't there? And, uh, uh, but also with the new music that we have, we were, men- we're, we're reminded that every single season there are people that are coming to Christ uh, that are writing in their own heart language music to the Lord that we get to participate in. I'm thankful for the blend that our team puts together of those things. So I pray that you, uh, yeah. We'll encourage them. Um, this morning and next week, uh, we're just going to spend a few moments to reflect. Uh, this season, always there's a change. If you came ready for the book of Acts, and all you have is your uh, little worship book of Acts, I am sorry. Uh, we will be back in that right after men's retreat, short hiatus for a couple of uh, small series uh, that we're going to do. Uh, we'll be back in the book of Acts at the, uh, at, right after men's retreat. Uh, and so uh, you can uh, bring your regular Bible. If uh, you uh, don't have one, you can grab one. Uh, as you're coming into the church, there's always Bibles at uh, the entrance there. And if uh, you don't have one, just take one of those. We'd love to have you follow along with us. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. I was talking uh, with a group of pastors this last week. We had an opportunity to meet, um, and consistently, uh, as I talk with guys, uh, not just in our city, but in other places, but in particular in our city, they have felt led to come to Isaiah chapter 9 as a series. It's always intriguing to me uh, to see what God does in other congregations, but when the Spirit of God begins to move people towards a certain theme, quite often what I take from that is there's probably something here he wants the church to hear, right? We have in this season a few passages that we can jump to, a few passages that we consistently will look at. Isaiah chapter 9 is one of those that are famous, and it's that way not just because of the picture that it shows of who Jesus is. Uh, This week, we're going to take a look at the mood that was in that passage. Next week, we're going to take a look at the job description in that passage. Uh, We're just going to reflect for a moment at what it was that Isaiah is is talking about, Um, but he is definitely looking forward to a messianic king. It is important for us to see that, but also to be able to see um, what it is that Jesus claimed he was. In the book of Matthew, this is listed at the very beginning, this passage listed at the very beginning of his ministry uh, as a clarifier. This is the one that we are looking at, Isaiah chapter 9 being fulfilled. Christ claims this as a passage that highlights who he is. So this is a a valuable passage. We live in an age right now that has, in some ways, succumbed to darkness, I don't know if uh, you felt the mood in our country recently, but I wouldn't say that it is peppy, energetic, and happy, right? 
We're not all singing Disney songs. We're not all skipping when we're going down the street. Uh, if you were to watch the news lately, you're hard-pressed to find anything that would be considered good news. Uh, and if they did have that in there, uh, you know, a little puff piece here or there, uh, it's manufactured. It feels hollow. You can tell that's not what they're really about. We have a, a society that is dire. It's overwhelmed. Uh, and everything that we do radiates a painful heart. Psychology Today noted this. Uh, Robert Firestone talking about the human condition, says that there's a mystery that they're trying to deal with. Uh, he says human beings, unlike other species, are cursed with a conscious awareness of their own mortality. I believe that the tragedy of the human condition is that people's awareness and true self-conscious concerning this existential issue contributes to an ultimate irony, he says. Human beings are both brilliant and aberrant, sensitive and savage, exquisitely caring and painfully indifferent, remarkably creative and incredibly destructive to themselves and to others. He says, we can't move forward because we're so schizophrenic in the way that we deal with the world. He goes on and he says, with all of the advances of science and technology, if one takes a proper look at the world situation today, one must consider it to be utter madness. Millions go hungry. Genocide reaches epic proportions. Ethnic strife and prejudice are omnipresent. There is mass killing in the name of religion, and warfare remains a viable solution to our differences. With better, more efficient weapons and less reason, and technology outrunning rationality, human existence on the planet may well be extinguished. This is Psychology Today's idea of hope, okay? <laughs> Man, I don't know if you just felt the lights go out or something, but uh, not a happy dude. How do we deal with this typically, though? Uh, it, there's some people where every time that you're around them, you just get a, a dark message. Sometimes you're around people and it's just always angry and irritation and bitter, bothered and blaming, right? That's where we land. But a lot of us turn in the United States to cynicism. We, we try to joke it away. There's actually a website right now that's gaining popularity called despair.com, all right? And they have created posters for your workplace based on the current mood in the United States. These are to replace the actual ones uh, that you put up there all the time that just say hang in there, right? And it's a little kitty hanging off the edge of a couch, all right? This is despair.com's posters. They have one that says Teams. Because together, we can do the work of one. <laughs> How about this one? Government. If you thought that the problems we create are bad, just wait till you see our solutions. <laughs> How about discouragement? Because there's nothing standing between you and your goal, but a total lack of talent and a complete failure of will. <laughs> That's a little goldfish looking at where he could be. <laughs> How about you are special? If you need additional affirmation, get a puppy. The rest of us are trying to work. <laughs> or this one, the hallmark for them, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that one hits too close to home, right? Right? 
We'll end on the puppy next time. We try to laugh it off. Why is it that our society is trying to laugh things off? Because the reality is we are living in an age that has abandoned hope in many situations. We have lost the reason for the season. We have ignored what it means to follow Christ. The values that come from faith are no longer pervasive. We live in an age, we live in a time where there is great heaviness, there are few answers, and we try to explain them away. We try to explain away the pain, we try to explain it away in other ways, but there is no internal logic to what is going on around us. We're in despair. It was in a very similar situation that Isaiah chapter 9 is written. The society as a whole was concerned. The government didn't care about them. The people that were surrounding them hated them. There was threats on every side, a constant concern about war, a degradation of what was going on inside their society. They no longer were after the Lord. The government was no longer thinking about righteousness. Everybody was chasing after their own way, and destruction was just around the corner for every single family and person that was living there. It was a season of darkness. And the prophet comes to Ahaz and begins to paint a picture of a brighter day, of a king that would come and lead in righteousness. Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1 and through verse 7, highlights one of these messages of hope that he gave. Let's stand and read this together. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. For in former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He's giving us the location where this great message will arrive. The people who walk in darkness, he says, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest. They are glad like when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of trampling warrior in the tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here's that famous passage, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you believe that's true? Maybe seated. Father, as we take just a few moments and look at this passage, I pray that you would help us to be able to see uh, the mood in that day, the heaviness that was there, and the answer that is provided. The anticipation not only of Christ our Savior, but of the returning King. Father, we look forward to the day that you set all things right, where he rules and reigns in righteousness. Help us as we look at this uh, to look full in his face 
Not look to answers from ourselves, but only to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, it's well said that uh, at this time of year, we uh, at Christmas and Easter take time to look at uh, our faith. We have a few passages that we'll look at. Christmas time, we look directly at Jesus, who he is. Uh, at Easter, we take a look at exactly what he has done, what he has accomplished on our behalf. And in this passage, we see a picture of Christ. In fact, I just want us to walk through uh, the passages surrounding the job description that we have in chapter 6. And next week, we'll tackle that. Um, but in this week, I just want us to take a look at what it is that is going to be transformed just by his appearing, what he will begin to undo, and ultimately what he will undo uh, it's looking forward, the prophet is, to the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. He's looking forward to the final uh, stand of Christ on the earth where he changes our entire situation. He says that a child from Galilee will transform the world. That's what he says in this passage. Now, I know what you're thinking. We, we've already tried government run by children, Right? Is that really a good thing? Here he says that there is a child, a son who will be given, and the implication is a majestic one. He's actually saying there is somebody who will be given to you who can actually handle this. The king of kings, he's actually eternal. It is actually the living God that's going to be on the throne. The implications are incredible. A child from Galilee will transform the world. This will be the one that will answer the great oppression. This will be the one that will take care of what it is that is going on in the world scene, not just in this time, but in every single generation. When men try to take care of it on their own, it leads to despair. When God steps in, it leads to joy. He has consistently shown this. Well, what will happen when this child takes the throne? What is it that he is describing that will happen in the future? He says, the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. He starts by saying that darkness will be dispelled. I just want us to envision this for a moment. This once again speaks to the mood. It's not just the idea that the sun isn't as strong. The idea of darkness is that there is a time of depression where you can actually begin to feel things getting darker. There's a sense around you that, that it is not quite right. Uh, when it says that they dwell in great darkness, it's actually a lack of understanding and a lack of direction. When it gets darker, it is harder to see. If it's dark in a room, you can't find the way to the exit. If it's dark at the mall during a Christmas sale, you're in trouble, right? You're going to get trampled. There is this sense that energy has left, that life is leaving, that you are unable to know which direction to go. It's a sense of oppression and danger. When it talks about dwelling in darkness, it's the idea that I can be safe in my home, but I can't go out the door. It's the idea that when I'm walking down the street, I'm afraid. It's the idea that I no longer can allow my children to play outside or to walk with a stranger or be near someone else because of the great harm that's in our society. There is a fear of something going wrong, perhaps at any moment. That's a sense of gloom. 
It's a sense of financial gloom. How am I going to make my bills? How am I going to pay for my health care? How am I going to take care of uh, the problems that may arise? I'm living at 100%. I have no margin in my life. It speaks of a complete lack of hope. He says the people who walk in darkness, not just who have experienced darkness, but who live in it every single day, will see a great light. There's a moment where out of the darkness, a light shines and clarity makes us aware of something that we were never paying attention to. There's something sitting here on the uh, stage. It's been sitting here all the way through the entire production. It's just six inches tall. Sitting right here with just a, a few moments describing darkness, you can feel the lights in the room coming down, but all of a sudden now you see this little cross that's highlighted there. One of the things that happens with light, and I want you to notice this, is it grabs your attention. The darkness is all around you, but light causes you to pay attention to that place on the piano. It gives clarity. All of a sudden, this is what I'm supposed to be looking at. Your mind begins to define one thing rather than looking at all of the problem that is around you. It begins to size up. What is it that we are trying to focus on? When it says that a light shines in the darkness, it's not just that all of a sudden you can see to do whatever you want to do, but you finally see what it is God wants to highlight. He wants to highlight something other than your gloom, but not just an answer for you. This is the answer. Amen? He says a light has shined in the darkness, and when that happens, your attention is drawn to God's answer. Yes, you can see the way, but you see the way because of God's answer. There is something that happens in you when light comes in. If you're dealing with somebody who is depressed, they consistently will draw the shades and curl up in a ball and hide in the dark, and always what you will hear people say is, we got to bring some light, sunshine, openness, Bring up the lights. A change of mood follows that. This is what happens when we come near Christ. He says that for the people walking in darkness, they will see a great light, and it changes their experience. That's a beautiful promise. It's not just that light will come to the darkness, but it says that oppression will be obliterated. He says, you have multiplied the nation. He says, I'm looking into the future, and he's speaking as a prophet speaks. He sees it, and he says, I see this off in the distance. Man, a day where you've taken care of all of the barriers that would be to their success. You've multiplied them, increased their joy. They rejoice in front of you. Why? Because the, loke, the, the yoke of his burden, the staff that keeps striking his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor is broken. It's gone. There's no longer oppression. You broke it as in the day of Midian. Listen to this. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as for the fire. There is coming a day when you will not have to fear war, destruction, or hard, hardship because the king that rules and reigns will take care of all oppression. Can you imagine that? We can't imagine it, folks. We can't imagine a day without fear where there is no need. I was just looking at what does it cost for us to be uh, prepared for war, all right? 54%, this is from four years ago. Four years ago, we have added since then over $80 billion to this uh, budget for our military, but 
Four years ago, 54% of our budget was spent on the military. Now, I don't want to make any comments about that. I am thankful for those who have served. I'm thankful for uh, the protection that we have. But I want you to hear this. 54%, less than 1% on food and agriculture. Can you believe only 6% on government? 54% it takes. $598 billion that we're spending. When you take a look at how much that we in the United States spend compared to all of the other nations around us, okay? China, Saudi Arabia, India, France, Russia, the UK, and Germany all combined spend $40 billion less than we do annually. But all of us combined are in the trillions that we are spending to protect ourselves from others, We live in fear. And some would say we're not spending enough. The danger is right at the door. We spend a lot of time worried about war. Just since 9-11, we have been spending an amazing amount as a result of war. Over 801,000 people have died due to direct war and violence. 335,000 civilians have been killed as a result of the fighting. 21 million, that's the number of war refugees and displaced persons uh, in the world right now due to wars that are ongoing. The federal price tag, this isn't having, having anything to do with our, uh, our defense, but the federal price tag just for post-9-11 wars is $6.4 trillion. The interest alone on what we have taken out is going to be over $8 trillion in the next six years. Folks, We live in fear, and we are concerned about, can you imagine? Um, Global spending on humanitarian relief. This last year, $22 billion, it it was a high. People have spent money. The bulk of that comes from citizens who are concerned about the hurting and the broken. The United States spends four times as much as any other nation uh, on relief and aid it is still less than one quarter of 1% of our annual budget we spend on people that are broken and hurting. Can you imagine if we just took 10% of our defense and instead of $4 billion annually, we spent $60 billion on those who are broken and needy in the United States and around the world. We would fund every single relief project right now to its entirety over three times. He says there is coming a day where you will not need war. All of that will be rolled up and burned. There's no longer any fear. And all of that will be used for worship, for blessing, for connection, for health, for the benefit of the world. Can you imagine that? A world where instead of fear, because of a good king, oppression is gone. They no longer have to worry about how much you're going to spend on door locks, right? You can continue to spend as you will at Christmas. Oppression will be obliterated, but it also says this. In that day, government will be good. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor you will break on the day of Midian. Of the increase of his government, so not brutality, but the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, it will go and it will grow. The entire world will be blessed and it will be filled with what's known as shalom. 
Now, government, no matter what age you are in, is always imperfect. Do you believe this? Is anybody in the room doubting that governments can be imperfect? <laughs> governments are imperfect as long as man is in control. There was a, a recent study that was done uh, by Princeton and um, Northwestern University, Gillens and Page. And when they were trying to find out whether or not the average American citizen had any voice in actually what's going on or what the laws are being written uh, in Congress. And I know we're touching a little bit on politics. For some of you, that's a sensitive nerve. So I'm just going to say, don't worry. All right. We're talking about Christ the King. Don't be worried about any major shifts here. We need to understand that Scripture is pointing out that there is a brokenness here, and we need to agree. Gillens and Page found that the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near-zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. What did they study? 1,800 significant laws or policies that were instated over a course of 20 years, and they registered what was the percentage of Americans that were for that and what was um, the response that government had, and they said it should match up. If 30% of the citizenry said this was something we should be about, then there should be 30% of our politicians that are voting for that, right? And they said that no, what they found out was that the worst ideas have a 30% chance of getting through, and the very best ideas that everybody would support, statistically 100%, still only have a 30% chance of getting through. There's no difference. Why? Because government is insanely wrapped around man's thinking. There is coming a day, it says, where the increase of his government, and increase by that means that everybody trusting it, everybody yielding to it, everybody saying, this is perfect. There's coming a day where everyone that is around you, you will say, man, they have the right to rule. And not only that, but of peace. It's not just that government will be good, but righteousness will reign. People will turn to righteousness. There's a term that's used in Scripture, shalom. Uh, it was a term for peace. When we have used that in English, we tend to define peace. Uh, and we define peace quite often as just the, the failure of others to attack us. We've seemed settled in our place. But when you hear that term shalom or perfect peace in Scripture, it's actually shalom, shalom. It's peace that has filled up the individual. There's a peace that comes from the inside of that person and a sense of well-being because everything is settled financially. Everything is settled uh, when it comes to their health. Everything is settled for them across the board. There is this sense of well-being that is pouring out of them that causes them to rightly see others around them and to connect with the world. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Everyone who comes to him will get their just due. Everyone who comes to him will be treated fairly. I actually read about this guy in the UK just a little bit ago. He went to sleep one night. He parked his car in front of his house the way that he always did. He woke up and found that he had a $110 ticket for parking there. He couldn't figure out what it was, and he looked and in the middle of the night, somebody from the city he was living in had painted a disabled sign around his car. 
And the next guy that came along said, hey, he's parked in a disabled spot, and they ticketed him. <laughs> it didn't just happen to him. It happened to like three different people. Found out they were doing a fundraiser at the city there that he was at. And uh, he said, you know, this doesn't seem fair. I've been parking here for years. He thought it was an April Fool's joke. It happened on April 1st. There's no longer going to be a sense of that with the government. There's no longer going to be a sense of lack or unfairness. There's no longer going to be a sense that you'd be cheated even by your fellow neighbors. Coming out of the individuals dwelling in this place because of the righteous king that is over them, there's going to be such a sense of peace that you not only trust your rulers, you're going to trust your neighbor. They will treat you as God would have you be treated. Shalom will increase. Not just a change of circumstances, but a change internally. You know, you can change the circumstances of somebody who's broken and they will not receive it. But if you change internally the heart of that individual, they can receive things in a broken state uh, that will lead towards a definite promise, a hope for the future. He says there's a change that happens internally and the whole world will be restructured. The king will be so good so fair, so fatherly, that it will transform the hearts of the people that he serves. What does it say at the very end? Verse 7, it says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Final thing that we see is that God's promises will be proven. God's promises will be proven. God says he is passionate to make this happen. The zeal, when you see somebody who is zealous, you see somebody who is thinking only about that and all of their energy goes that direction. Um, when someone is zealous for something, that passion defines them. Think of uh, an energy in your life and the way that people look at you. And it may be for football, it may be for another activity. Um, there is something about you that everything that you do, you begin to think about it, you begin, you're activated by it, you are pursuing it. But also when it says there is someone who is zealous for something, uh, you will notice. Other people take notice of the effort that it takes in order for them to participate in that zeal. Uh, a little kid at Christmas who wants to know what is in their presence, right? They are zealous to open presents. Everyone around can tell that that's what they're thinking about, okay? Can you have a cookie? Do you want a candy cane? No, no, no. I want to open that right over there. Can I shake it? Can I hold it? Can I look at it? You know, and they're, they're near the presence. They'll give up other things that normally they would uh, sacrifice their brother or sister for in order to taste it, but now they want that. The zealousness of that child is evident. But finally, when someone is zealous, they are measured by the fruit of that zeal. When you are zealous for something, everyone around not only sees it, the energy that you have is expended on it, but then the world begins to evaluate, was it a worthy thing? Is this something worthy to be zealous over? It says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts, that's that term, the Lord of angel armies, when his right arm comes out, when all of his strength is on display, when all of his energy from the hosts of heaven, that means the angel armies that are with him, he is looking at this answer. His passion is to see this done and all of his energy will be towards it. God says, measure me by whether or not this day comes. 
it'll happen. God says, not only will it happen, but this matters. Jesus is going to rule and reign and change our situation. Do you believe it? Matthew chapter 4 gives us this picture. It answers who this child is. This is the very first scene that we have after Christ has been baptized, announced to the world, tested. John the Baptist has been put in prison, and it says, and leaving Nazareth, verse 13 of chapter 4 in Matthew, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's exactly the area that is prophesied. It says, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the king. He's coming again, folks. That's the promise of scripture. He's coming again to fulfill this passage completely. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. This time of year, what we celebrate is not just a cute memory. It's not just a stirring up of other people to do some goodwill. It's not just gift giving so that we can cheer our family members or maybe undo some bad things that we've done throughout the year. It is not self-driven. What we celebrate this time of year is a king that came to redeem us and change our situation. We celebrate a savior who came as a baby in order to die on our behalf. That's who we celebrate. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for the opportunity to reflect on these things. And some of them are hard for us to wrap our minds around. When we begin to look, Father, at the kind of hope that we manufacture, what it costs us, the energy that it takes, the lack of safety that we feel even when we proclaim that we are safe. Father, we cannot get peace done. We cannot manufacture hope. It must come from you. And so we ask that you would fill us up with a sense of that hope because we are looking at Christ, that our eyes will be focused on him, the author and finisher of our faith, Scripture says, the one who will make it so. Father, we proclaim Christ. We ask you to help us to live for him in such a way that others can see our zeal. And Father, we look forward to his soon return. Scripture says that it will happen, that someday all these things will be fulfilled. And we eagerly await our King. We praise you that we can celebrate this time of year things like this. And we ask you to help us to follow through with living a life that's worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.